0: I've I found myself here going, how does this even happen? When did you become like the canning lady in Canada? But it's happened. And it gives me the opportunity to, to share my passion and care for lots of people.
1: This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Is there a more confounding, confusing and often contradictory concept as seafood sustainability? For some, it's the airbags and a bright red Tesla. It simply isn't allowed on the road if it doesn't have them. For others, it's the shiny red juco, the brand and the perception of being part of a movement that means the most. The notion of what actually seafood sustainability means remains one of the more polarising and often abused terms in the world of food. A large corporate caterer or retailer might mandate that seafood supply can only come from a certified sustainable source while still demanding the selection of a choice centre cut of boneless fillet with no regards to what happens to the rest of the fish. Similarly, a signature chef might happily crow that they only ever use sustainable seafood, whilst also celebrating French champagne, truffles air freighted fresh from Italy, or Wagyu beef, all of which have undeniably dubious sustainable credentials. The seafood sustainability discussion is fraught with many first world oxymoronic examples. Travelling through the third and emerging worlds can often be humbling when it comes to food supply and use. It's more common to see the total utilisation of a day's catch across the breadth of a community than it is to see a sustainability advocate jumping up on a green baize-covered soapbox, wringing their hands and gnashing their teeth in the hope that someone will notice. But being cynical is not a solution to what is the greatest threat to the continued enjoyment not only of the greatest protein of them all, but indeed our planet. There are some people for whom the challenge is more about affirmative action that celebrates the concept of sustainable seafood. They typically are innately building a working model of sustainability through the intelligent utilization, promotion, and absolute enjoyment of eating seafood in a commercial basis. Charlotte Langley is one such sustainable seafood champion. Coming from a position of deliciousness first, her approach is iron fist in a gilded velvet glove.
0: Um, my name is Charlotte Langley. I'm the co-founder and CCO of Scout Canning. Uh, and I'm currently located in Ontario, but I'm from the east coast of Canada. I'm from Prince Edward Island, which is like the smallest island in Canada, situated in the far east side of the country. And uh, sort of looks like a little half, uh, quarter moon floating in the ocean. <laughs> it's very small. I was raised in a very small fishing village and was surrounded by the ocean. My From downtown to uptown, the, it was only... Um, Three miles connecting sort of the downtown to the top of the city. So I could get the North shore and the South shore in a very nice walk if I wanted, if I wanted to in one, in one afternoon. And the province itself is primarily made up of fishing, potatoes, and now golf, but that's a whole other conversation. So (laughs) it's a lot of golfers out there, but the primary industry has been exporting seafood, um, all around the world, uh, especially lobster, crab, some halibut, but mostly lobster, crab, and shellfish has been sort of the biggest driver of export from that area since I can remember. Yeah, it was very lovely. It was very free. Um, The majority of the population was quite low income, so there was not a lot of demand or push to, you know, move to move, move off the island. It was very much like you're born there, you raised there, you stay there. You don't do much. You either work in the fishing industry or you work in the farming industry. And it's a very gentle place. They call it the gentle island for a reason. I had, you know, you open the front door when I was a kid and I came back after dark. No, the doors were never locked. You know, everyone brought you in for supper. Supper was always around five, five thirty. Very community driven, very friendly neighborhoods, very small town. And it was a very lovely and peaceful way to grow up. And I enjoy it and I love it there. I still I go often.
1: Seafood can create many emotions. Just as the ubiquitous bad prawn and barley experience can leave an indelible mark on one's memory, so too can that early dip into the wonderful world of seafood unlock a lifetime of pleasure.
0: There's a friend of mine who's no longer with us, unfortunately, and he was a big oyster man uh, back in his day. And I remember being about, I think I was nine or ten years old, and I went to meet him. My mom helped me get this because I was quite little, but uh, he sold me 12 oysters out of the back of his truck in a grocery bag that I brought home for my dad for Father's Day. And my dad sort of showed me how to open them up with like a screwdriver, you know, on the back porch. And experiencing like that process and Like sharing that moment with my dad was, was, it was very memorable. And also it sort of showed me sort of like what, how enjoyable seafood could be, you know, not all nine-year-olds like oysters. And I thought they were delicious and fun and refreshing and kind of like gnarly in a way. Like they look kind of funny and they were like misshapen. These are Malpec oysters, so they weren't the cultivated ones that we see in the market today, which are all like, you know, tossed and tumbled to be perfect and all look the same these are malpecs, so they're kind of a wild seed and kind of like misshapen and interesting that was when my first like like you know i'll hold on to that memory with my father and my friend john for my entire life but it was kind sort of funny it was like seafood permeated kind of every day it was always around the grocery stores in town were very small they're more like grocery or small markets nothing fancy like european but like you know, there was onions and potatoes, cabbage, carrots, rutabaga, haddock, and a lot of shark, actually, because shark was a bycatch of the larger, the halibut and tuna industry there. So they would sell shark to the locals and export everything else away. So there's always, seafood was always, you know, a part of the, the meal. And there's a lot of tin fish, but not the conservas and the things that we'll likely talk about today, but this product called Chicken Hattie and I bring it up almost every time I have a chance to talk to people like yourself and it was a can that had a combination of haddock, pollock, and hake and it was just like fish cakes, or fish flakes and it made the best fish cakes. Day-old potatoes mashed up with a can of Chicken Hattie loaded with butter and molasses and or mustard pickles depending on what you're into and uh, that was a staple memory as well.
1: There is something about getting into food, be it through formal training or working with motivated, inspired, and driven food folk. It's once the gate opens that the path for many takes them on a lifelong journey of discovery.
0: I'm a very outgoing young lady, and I thought to myself when I was growing up, I was like, I'll be a singer or a dancer or a show business. A dream I had years ago was to be a lounge singer in Ireland of all places. Like, that was a vision I had for myself, like lying on a piano singing show tunes, right? that didn't happen so i was learning to myself you know what i need a job i need a career so i said to myself you know not not seeing your dancing i like food i might as well look into culinary into a culinary career so i went to the i went to college when i was around 20 and i went to culinary school and when i didn't between the first and second year you have to do an internship like a co-op you know that show that you've a co-op to show that you've Gone to college, and I chose a restaurant on the west coast of Canada. I tried, I, went, I decided to go all the way to the other coast of the, of the country, and work at a restaurant called C, the big, like a big letter C. And it was the first sustainable seafood restaurant, and the first restaurant that was sort of high end that I ever worked in. And I learned from two great chefs there you know, the sourcing relationship, the stories, working directly with the fishers. Like, you know, the the scallops are getting dropped off live from this guy. The prawns are coming from this guy. And like the thought care around those relationships was sort of embedded in me at that time. And as soon as I left that restaurant, which was only a short period of time, like three or four months I staged there, I was hooked, literally. I know that's the one thing that's great about seafood. There's lots of puns uh, on the space. And I started focusing my energy on working primarily in the seafood sector and in the culinary space around seafood and fish. So that always sort of just followed me or led me. Either way, you know, we were kind of hand in hand and I found myself – Another seafood restaurant, then another seafood restaurant, then a sustainable seafood restaurant, and this and that. And I ended up running a great restaurant in Ottawa called the Whale's Bone. <laughs> of course, funny name, and it was a sustainable seafood restaurant. And that's really sort of where I got my my the weight of my career. Like, that's when I sort of was became established in that culinary seafood space. Whale's Bone was um, a thirty seat restaurant, and when I first went in there. You know, the back kitchen was very tiny, like the the execution space. You know, you could fit two people on the line only. There's no room for anybody else. And we were doing like, you know, maybe 30 or 40 covers a night. It was very slow and quiet. It was a newer business. And by the time I left, you know, I was doing like 120 covers. And night. we were flipping the room like crazy. And every dish I did was seafood. So I was like, you know, my house chowder, my lobster roll, my ceviche, this escabash, you know. This wild salmon caught this way. This hook and line caught that way. It's like, you know, swordfish is in season. We're working at that. So I responded directly to seasonal products because a season is a season for a reason. And I made so many different dishes and so many different recipes there. And that really helped me hone my creative craft as well as get to know the sourcing and the relationships and the fishers even deeper because I was now able to have Like buying power and saying, hey, I'm looking for this mackerel or I'm looking for this. Can you help me source it? Or do you grow seaweed? Like what's going on? So I became became very active in the community, uh, representing underloved species.
1: One of the beauties of the world of seafood is the incredible diversity of flavors and textures, not just between species, but between the different cuts, organs and pieces of any given seafood. Eating not only across the seafood basket, but also from scale to tail, can be commercially challenging. Designing and preparing tasty food is only half of the equation. Selling it to a customer in a restaurant is another.
0: Well, it was interesting. I remember I had a, a Newfie, so Newfoundland and East Coast of Canada as well. I had a Newfie come in. He's like, I can't believe you're charging me $28 for a piece of mackerel. This stuff is pennies where I come from. I was like, well, I'm trying to explain to you, my friend, that seafood is valuable across the board and... You're paying $28 for a piece of mackerel because you're not going to be paying $75 for a lobster. It was about balancing the food costs. So every dish was relatively accessible to the guests, not just, you know, lobster for the rich and mackerel for the poor. It was a way to sort of have a varied menu. And at first, people didn't really know how to take me because I'm kind of a wild child. I was in the kitchen, like, you know, booty shorts, cowboy hat, like tank top the guy next to me was wearing a chef jacket they assumed he was the chef i was like no 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 i'm the chef and at first they were a little taken aback but once they started tasting what i was making and i was starting to really hone in on exclusive menus for people so i did tasting menus mostly by the end of my career there i my job there i didn't even have i had a menu but no one followed the menu i was like how hungry are you scale of 1 to 10 what happened to you today? Do a little research, get to know the clients. And a lot of them were return clients. And I would just cook for people, you know, one course menu, like one course, 10 courses, whatever. And it became just like an organic experience of sharing um, my passion for hospitality and the seafood, seafood industry to my guests. I feel that, you know, trust takes time and i spent almost 5 years working in this restaurant and if people first came to meet me they were expecting to taste the previous chef's chef's dishes and i spent a lot of time and energy i guess <laughs> seducing people to, to come and spend time with me so when they would guess would order a chowder or a sandwich or a, you know a fillet of some type I would send out a little sampling or a tasting, something I'm working on. I'm inspired by these flavors right now. What do you think? I've been working on this dish. I'd love for you to taste and get your feedback. So by including people in the process, uh, they helped me design and curate where it went. It's market research, right? Like the more people that taste and trial, the more you're going to get to know what they like, dislike, react to, your favorites on the menu, you know, your underloved or your like underdogs, um The variety expanded, and I got ridiculous. <laughs> the creativity flew like flew out of me, and I ended up making some pretty, pretty funny, funky cl- flavor combinations. There, I remember one time right before I was leaving, I did like a like a, a la plancha, like a charred piece of wild king salmon, and I got a white salmon, and I served with peanut butter and jelly. But like it was like a smoked, it was like a smoked peanut puree that was savoury with, like, a light raspberry jam vinaigrette with the chard, and they, like, you know, it balanced. I balanced it out by using, like, like, my skills, I guess, to make it different.
1: Fishermen work in boatloads, wholesalers in truckloads, and retailers mostly only want things that people know and buy. Building a relationship with a fisherman who is not only prepared to listen to the request but is prepared to care for the bycatch that a chef thinks they can hero is much easier said than done.
0: They are used to selling exporting commodity. You know, they're like, we, we harvest one thing. This is what we do. We sell that. That's kind of it. And I was like, well, what about your bycatch? You know, what is that looking like? Can I have, ma- hey, what are you actually using for bait? Oh, you are using halibut collars? Can I buy those? Can I buy a couple of those? And I think they thought I was play- playful and maybe a bit foolish. But they saw that clients were enjoying, you know, a variety of alternate species, not just the salmon and the tunas. And people then kind of were like, They trusted me. They're like, we trust you to take us on a journey. What are you trying these days? The cheeks of this, you know, uh, turning, like hanging sardines over my line and aging them and like the oils that were coming off, like using in the frying pan instead of using an oil, you know, and searing mushrooms in that, like just using all of the fish and the fishermen, like they were pretty interested. The farm, the aquaculture people were also like, wow, this is a channel for us to actually sell product and someone's going to care for it and, and also educate the consumer, Because there's a big barrier there between the fisher or the aquaculture or the farmer and the the end consumer, they don't have necessarily like a a direct line to each other, right? They're kind of kept apart because of all the distribution channels and all the supply channels. So as a chef, it's my honor, privilege, and I think my duty to share this with people. Like, this is where it comes from. This is that guy or girl. This is how it's grown. These are the carbon inputs or, you know, whatever you want to know about it, I'm happy to talk to you about it. And people became more interested. And I have people from that restaurant still call me or message me or text me or whatever. And they're like, I only buy products that I know I can confidently come from this source. Or I feel confident in these seafood purchases now because of your help. And people now like grown up with me in that sense you know they've they learned what they liked and how to source it properly and they're going to stay with that forever which is really exciting they have, the impact's been f- tangible because as I dove deeper into this industry you know lots of questions came up it was like sourcing and seasons and um, traceability on the program on the product like you know where is this actually rockfish or is this something else is this actually what that is or is it something else and for me, I want to provide solutions to my guests where they don't have to worry about what they're getting. I'm like, I'm doing the homework, I'm creating the relationships, I'm doing the effort, I'm working with these third party auditors, I'm working with all these pe- scientists, like, you know, data, real data to provide you the best possible food for your body and also the health of our oceans. So they kind of, you know, I met somebody a few weeks ago. I was, I randomly was in Nova Scotia. I'm working on a little thing. And, um, someone was like, are you an environmentalist? I was like, what? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm a chef that, it was just, it caught me off guard because I've become so passionate about protecting and helping and supporting regenerative uh, aquaculture and, you know, wild, wild capture that people think I'm, you know, I'm an environmentalist now, I guess, <laughs> I guess this happens. They kind of go, they kind of became one.
1: The Marine Stewardship Council's iconic bluefish logo is regarded by many across the seafood world as the gold standard in third party sustainable seafood certification. Its assessment process is scientific, objective, and rigorous. Its associated ambassadors typically have a reputation of being the same.
0: So I wanted to give people more data and like show them like what is working what is a great system where you can feel confident in your kitchen at home in your purchases to feed your family all those things and the first sort of organization because i am in canada um msc is, an, is primarily been an industry-facing organization for the last 20 years So as we all know like it's not like you know you don't see you didn't see posters of it 20 years ago in canada there's a company called ocean wise and ocean wise is a um a recommendation program. We recommend you eat this versus that. Whereas MSC is a certification standard. So, I wanted to provide more data to my consumers and make them feel confident that they could trust me. So, you know, data is helpful. And I just started researching and being like, "Oh, MSC, what is this?" And then it says global certification, they have third-party auditors. Okay, this seems like legit. It felt like it's a legitimate organization that can back up what I'm saying. And, um, I threw a party i was at I had a house party. It was Halloween in oh God seven or eight years ago, and the theme of the party was under the sea and everybody had to come dress up as a sustainable sea sea creature, so all these costumes were amazing and A guest attended this party and it was happened to be the head of marketing for m s c in Canada. Her name is Celine she's a great lady, and she came up to me and she goes. I want to talk to you about something after this party. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And she came over the next day or a couple of days later. And she's like, everything that you do aligns with our mission, which is, you know, to educate the consumers around uh, certified wild, like to, to buy wild fish, eat more of it, eat it more mindfully and feel confident in their purchases. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I did some research on you guys. I think that goes hand in hand. She goes, we want you to be the chef ambassador for Canada. And I was like, Wow, okay. One, I'm very uh, honored. And two, I don't even know what that really means. Like, what does that mean? What am I doing? She goes, everything. She's like, well, you just, I like, what do I need to do? She goes, well, everything that you do already, everything that you're already doing is representing and, and, and spreading the good word or, you know, being an ambassador for our mission. So we're just going to put it on paper, basically, and we're going to find ways to help you be a voice for us in Canada and i was like this is amazing so i've been working with them as their chef ambassador for f- 5 years now and really what that means is i have the opportunity to learn from people that have serious careers in this space you know i'm working with marine biologists regularly i'm working with ngos and and fundraising organizations that are looking to like you know add positive impact to con- other countries that have less of a positive ocean impact than canada you know, I get to work with other chefs that are that care about the things that I care about. And we're just all trying really hard to make a positive impact to protect the regenerative qualities of our ocean and waterways. And it just happened kind of, I call it a happy accident, but it was natural. It was organic. It felt really real and authentic to work with them. And they just keep, they laugh at me and they think I'm crazy and I love it. And I think that I've I just been very fortunate to have a great relationship with these with this organization. It's cool. It's interesting. Like they have data, you know. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I can read reports. So exciting.
1: For many, a canned fish can bring back memories of a pungent, smelly, and often harsh-flavored protein they were forced to eat. The craft of producing and enjoying premium conserves has long been the exclusive domain of Western Europeans. A new movement is seeing this art being used not only for the purpose of culinary enjoyment but for sustainability purposes also. Charlotte's venture, Scout Canning, is at the forefront of this artisanal movement and is firmly anchored by her belief in delivering a working and delicious seafood sustainability business.
0: I've always felt like a a small fish in a big pond. And I was like, I feel like I'm making good waves with the community. Like I'm people are trusting me to care for them through the through the lens of a chef. I get to make great decisions. I get to, you know, influence the supply and demand in my small space. And I wanted to do more. I was like, I need to do more with this. You know, I'm this person but what else like I'm a chef you know like it's not an accreditation where like you know I've got a like a university degree on my wall I went to college I picked up a knife they gave me a certificate they're like here you go you know how to cut vegetables now it's not like some massive accreditation you know I'm not like there's no doctor after my name or you know MBA none of that and I was like well, I can how can I make impact with what I acknowledge that I have and believing positive impact is important for me it's like this is my life work this is my legacy work I hope. And. How do I reach more people? Well, I can make a, I want to get I want to get a product out there that is sustainable, delicious, nutritious, enjoyable, fun, carries my personality and also makes you feel good about the things that you're doing, like you know, choices that you've made. So I just said, well, if you guys remember this, I'm not sure if the same trend happened in Australia. I'm going to probably say yes, it did. When everybody was putting stuff in mason jars in restaurants, do you remember this? Like a cocktail a cupcake, a salad, like, you know, you get a tasting menu and it's all coming in a mason jar. And I was like, this is great. You know, it's, it's a preservation, but they're using it as a vessel, not as like a preservation necessarily. And I was like, okay, I don't want to deal with mason jars. They're heavy, they're clumsy, and I'm like over this trend. They're fucking everywhere, excuse my language. And then I was like, I also don't want to contribute more plastic waste to what we already produce on a global scale. So backpack, you know, is a very popular way to preserve and seal things pouches whatever I was like I don't want to deal with plastic I'm like so what am I gonna put in a box what am I making I can't put like you know muscles in a box they're gonna it's not gonna work so canning appeared and I was like okay this is an old craft you know there's a lot of technology that went into it in the first initial phases of its birth which is like 1905 and um the equipment really hasn't changed that much actually they just added some you know tech on t- on top of it but it's the same same methods and same approach so I went on Kijiji and like a secondhand you know shopping place and I looked in canning equipment and this guy so, this is actually funny. So, on our website, it says, Chef Charlotte Langley founded blah, blah, blah by finding this old piece of a canning equipment in her friend's attic. That is not true. I haven't changed it yet on the website because this canning piece of canning equipment weighs like 500 pounds. No one in their right mind would put a canning machine that weighs 500 pounds in their attic. You know, maybe their basement, but not like not on the third floor. So, that's all a lie. This guy had it in a warehouse. He was living in this crazy warehouse, he was a machinist hobbyist. So basically a collector. And he had this old canning machine that he had had from his grandmother or his grandparents that they used to hot pack when he was a kid. So it was a tabletop canner. It was 98 years old, the machine. And this is not an industrial commercial canner. I just want to say that. This is like home canning. You know, there's no steam injection here. This is a very hot pack, simple method. You have to boil them afterwards in your pressure cooker, all that kind of stuff. So I bought it for like 250 bucks, Canadian, something like that. I can't remember if it was 200 or 250, picked it up, brought it home. And I was like, okay, now I need to find cans because canning is funny in lots of ways. It's very, very specific. Like the can lid and sealer, like the specifics of it are very, very tiny, like minutiae. And a lot of canneries like, um, People that produce food in cans have their own tinneries associated with them. So they produce a lot of their own tins as well out of aluminum, which means they have custom cans for their own brand. So it's hard to find just cans floating around because they make their own. They have, um, what's that word when you own something like, a. Yeah, it's like a bespoke can for their own company. So they won't sell those to people, right? They're like, no, that's my can. Well, that's my size or our custom thing. So it took me about 10 months to find cans that would fit the chuck that this thing came with. And uh, that was a whole hella blue because I was like, you know, artisan craft startup vibe trying to find cans. And I got I convinced my partner at the time who worked for a German company, to broker 10,000 cans through his like lifting and rigging company to my house (laughs) in Ontario, downtown Toronto. So I was at the restaurant working. I got a phone call. They're like, we're here. I'm like, what do you mean you're here? And, uh, the guy had come a day early. I was scheduled the delivery for the next day. I fl- I fly home in a taxi. I was like, I will be right back. Uh, service open. Like we opened the restaurant in forty minutes. I'm like, okay, I'll be right back. Fly home. Get to my house. There's two massive pallets in the middle of the sidewalk, loaded with cans. Loaded. Like you never see. You've never seen someone unpack a pallet as fast as I did that day. Luckily, the cans are light, but it was bananas. So they had all these cans. And then I just started canning stuff. I went crazy. And the focus wasn't seafood initially. It was just like canning. Just like, how does this work? What is this technique? What is this machinery? You know? And um, I was canning crazy stuff like ice cream cakes and chopped liver and pierogies and fried chicken. Like, I was doing cocktails. Like, I was canning. I kind of canned everything. And uh, then I was like, what am I doing? Why am I wasting all my time trying to f- create this gigantic like menu it's on a restaurant what are you good at charlotte you're good at making delicious nutritious sustainable seafood items like recipes so the recipes that i create in the restaurants over the years you know you get your custom flavors you sort of like build your repertoire and i leaned into the repertoire of what i've been working on the last 10 years of my life and I started introducing those flavors, mussels with smoked paprika, tomato, fennel, you know, lobster, butter poached with some fresh herbs, uh, arctic char that had been cooked in uh, juiced carrots with wild leeks and fenugreek, you know, like all these flavors that I loved. And I just started canning all this stuff. And uh, this is like, you know, I'm not sure who's going to hear this, like what your demographics are, but it was kind of illegal <laughs> at the time. <laughs> And what I was doing was experimenting. I wasn't selling anything, but I was like, you know, canning it, trying it, you know, pushing the boundaries on it and challenging what I thought the canning industry was. Um, I ended up getting a few people that were interested. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to start this canning company. I'm going to introduce Conservas to North America. I'm going to inspire people to eat responsibly sourced tin fish at home and love it. So basically I want to take a can of scout and take like I go home with you you know I send my love and passion my flavor profiles my personality all the homework that I've done and you take it home and you enjoy it so I don't even need I don't even need to be there but I'm there with you doing that work ensuring that you're cared for because I have a hospitality background so Scout started that way like just very ad hoc very that classic story you know in the basement in the garage like in the back of the house like it happened that same way. Yeah. Scout. Well, Scout's my baby. And we've been in the market now for uh, just two years. We launched in 2020. But Scout is like North America's uh, sort of first craft cannery. So we work with co-packers. We built a cannery. We added a cannery. Sorry, let me say this properly. We were working with a fish processing plant. They had some canning equipment there. They make a lobster paste, and we said, "Can we add more equipment here and sort of like you know increase your volume and do canned food here, canned fish here?" And they somehow (laughs) amazingly said yes, and they're still our partners today. And I'm so grateful for them, and I love them. They're they're quite the team. And uh, they said, yes, we started doing product. I started doing product development there with the team, my, my two co-founders and lads, Nate and Adam. And we went there. I hung up with the engineer, QA person, you know, Randy was there. He's the, the, uh, he was the shipping guy. Like the whole crew was kind of interested because they typically process lobster. And I just started doing R&D product and can way scale way scale you know 0. 0.25 grams of this 0. 0.5 grams of that go through retort tasted it, tested it, tasted it, tested like many many months and iterations of this so we started canning that way and we were working with the uh, primarily atlantic canadian species lobster mussels and trout which we were sourcing from ontario and that's what we launched with three craft line three craft cans three relatively premium products um like, I think they're accessible, but, you know, it's in, it's in a kind of a range. And we launched on the market with those. So everyone was like, what the hell are you guys doing? This is like we don't, you know, canned food is has so many negative stigmas around it. Uh, or has, you know, it's not the most popular thing in North America. We're used to eating canned salmon, canned tuna, canned corn. And we're not eating conservas and, like, the culture is not, like, there yet. So we launched into a very interesting market at a very interesting time. So it was March of 2020. Nice <laughs> surprise. Fresh, the fresh and frozen industry, massive global industry of distributed seafood, like, you know, back and forth, back and forth. A lot of waste happens in that supply chain. A lot of loss happens in that supply chain. There's lots of things in that supply chain that are not good. There are some scenarios where there's slavery in the supply chain. You know? That's why some cans of tuna can cost 99 cents because... The human rights scenarios are not fully protected. And that's something that we really haven't talked about at Scout yet publicly, but it's something that we, like, really pay attention to and care about. But the art and craft of cans is not just, like, searing a piece of fish and putting it in your mouth. There's a lot of labor that goes involved. There's a lot of care that goes involved. And it helps sort of... <sighs> It helps by eliminating waste in some categories because a lot of stuff that can go into cans can be the odds and sods, the tips of the tails, the lines of the belly, not the Chateaubriand of the filet, you know, the stuff that you see at the grocery store on ice. We can sort of take care of some of the waste, the waste channel, which is amazing. And this is not waste, ladies. This is not waste, what we think of waste. This is amazing, valuable protein. But it doesn't look the way that the market's been trained to look for these things, you know, that center cut or marinated on a skewer. Or whatever, so we work on a, from a waste-based channel in many categories. The lobsters that we put in the cans, you know, it's not the whole tail that's been curled up and put in at the bottom. It's the broken pieces and the smaller bits and pieces that are less attracted to the consumer. So that's one part of it. The packaging, huge part of the par- of the program, most highly recyclable products, you know, in packaging from my, from what I understand, aluminum. Lined with organosol, which is a vegetable-based lining, BPA-free, as we all know. But it has no like it used to be like like lead and tin in old cans, which is very toxic. Now it's very healthy, highly recyclable. The product doesn't change in the can, as in like it's not going to denature. It's going to improve, if anything, over time. And it also has amazing shelf life. When you buy a piece of fish and take it home and know if you don't get to it in three days because you put in the back of the fridge by accident, guess what? That's going into the garbage or the compost. The majority of food we consume at home, so it's like 36% of food purchases wasted. You know, the stats out there around this, I don't know the exact, but it's in that realm. This helps preserve food waste from you throwing it out. It's portion size. You know, there's, three or four ounces in that can that's a great portion for lunch or even dinner with supplementary proteins and veg or you know starch and veg whatever you're into so it sort of focuses on many different channels they're all wins like these are all check marks in my opinion check we've got waste supply chain managed like know, supported we can use fancy stuff too and like the higher more quality pieces but we don't have to we can make something simple so delicious and valuable we have great recyclable packaging. Up to 10 times aluminum can be recycled. You know, that goes, that goes in and out. And that does get recycled. It happens. It's not like some of the other challenges of recycling in North America. I'll use as an example. We can help you understand how to be, feel more confident at home in the cooking. As in, like, you open a can, add to a pasta. We're simplifying the use. You know, convenience is a huge friggin' word right now. People want convenient food, convenient things. We're used to convenience now. Canned food is convenient open and eat it. You know, it's right there. Highly nutritious. And it lasts a long time. You can put it in the back of your cupboard for five years, you know. It's still going to be there. And it's not going to hurt you. Canned food's been getting a bad rap for a long time. It was never deemed valuable. It was always deemed like, you know, canned vegetables are mushy. Or like, this is kind of gross. Or, you know, I don't like tuna. I don't like, you know, that's weird. And i just think people need to explore and enjoy more. So by seeing... I know there's a rise and increase or a rise in demand for this product because I'm seeing more competition than I've ever seen in this field, in this sector. It is growing globally on a massive scale. When I first started with Scout, you know, we put the MSC logo on for a reason. We're like, this is certified. This increases the value of the product for us and the Fisher. You know, it's showing that this is a valuable product for a reason. In the last two year, in the last year, we're seeing the big brands like Ocean's and uh, Bumblebee and Chicken of the Sea and all these guys screaming from the top of the roof their certifications, their new sustainability messaging, their new you know climate positive drivers. This trend is catching on, and this is a positive trend. I feel so. It's it's gonna take a little bit more time, and I hope it's a trend that sticks around, but really just getting people excited about it. And people like myself, the chef, you hear me talking. I'm not going to cr- shut up because I'm from the East Coast and I will not stop talking, it would appear. But, you know, like we're out there championing it. We're championing the value of it.
1: The concept of regenerative farming, whilst a relatively new term in the world of agribusiness, is almost exclusively applied to terrestrial farming. Yet the concept is equally if not more relevant, to building aquaculture operations which enhance the water system as much as use it.
0: I'm really interested in um, three-tiered uh, farming systems. There's a company out of the, the States called Ocean, uh, um, Green Wave, and it's founded by this guy named Brent Smith. You should definitely talk to him too. He's amazing. He's from Newfoundland. But um, he has a three-tiered farming aquaculture system that grows kelp, and shellfish, so a combination of kelp, mussels, or scallops, or clams, depending on ones you choose, and it's cleaning bays, it's producing food, and it's re- it's reinvigorating uh, ecosystems wherever they're being planted. So that is really exciting for me right now. I'm stoked to see people coming up with really creative solutions to help protect and encourage regeneration in that's in those in our waterways, and. That's probably my number one exciting thing, but also the canning, the see the can culture, like people getting on board and eating it on a daily. My vision for the future includes opening micro canneries globally. So I think people think that to be successful based on a classic model of success, which is often includes lots of money, you have to have a big business. You have to have a massive processing plan, a massive export trade. Like that has to be... That's how they measure success in a lot of ways, and I disagree with that in many ways because success, for me, comes down to empowering people to feel confident and enjoy their lives where they are. Micro canneries can be small, you know, like two thousand square feet, to, like ish, to kind of like produce something. Where a fishing community, like something maybe in Australia, even has waste and trim, and they want to find solutions to their w- their waste channel. There are people there preserving and creating food for their communities and sharing it and selling it from those regions. So, I think that I, what I've, I see is myself opening and like creating with other communities ways to find solutions to food waste and to feed more people. This will, I think, answer some of the challenges of food security in the highly in a highly nutritious, protein dense tin. So, like I said, shelf life, delicious, highly nutritious, you know, accessible—all these things. This stuff can travel the world. Very easily, and feed lots of people based on all the things we've spoken. About, I've spoken about today, so that's what I see for the future: is more micro, bringing it back, reinvigorating this industry. It has given me a voice to share what I'm passionate about, and a a place that people are going. That actually makes a lot of sense, you know. Like it's, it gives me validation, and I'm really proud of the work. And I, you know, I've I found myself here going. How did this even happen? When did you become like the canning lady in Canada? But it's happened. And it gives me the opportunity to to share my passion and care for lots of people. And that's really important to me. That's what I love.
1: Many people talk about seafood sustainability. Few actually take affirmative action to back up their words. Standing in front of the concept by recognising that the most powerful tool in moving popular opinion is in delivering something that is nutritious, delicious and good for the planet. Charlotte Langley is putting her fish where her mouth is, creating awareness and understanding one tin at a time. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production. I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtailes Seafood Podcast or email us at dot Podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.